Hey, good morning, church. We are together in the house of the Lord. You've heard that before. But have you ever stopped to ask what makes it so? I mean, what really is it that makes this the house of God? Is it the color of paint that we put on the walls? Is it is it the sturdiness of a steel roof? Is it a sign up front that says church? Is that how we know this is the house of God? And those of you who are joining us out of uh, online, does that mean you're out of luck? That somehow you're not in God's house this morning and that, that you didn't make the trip in and because you're on your couch or your, 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 your kitchen table that God is not present? And we know clearly that's not true. We started last week, and we will over the summer months, be making our way through that great model prayer that Jesus taught his people. You remember the disciples came up close and said, Lord, would you teach us how to pray? And out of the lips of Jesus, over the next few verses comes one of the most majestic outpourings of prayer that, that has ever been uttered. And last week, we introduced it by saying that in doing that, Jesus wasn't just teaching us how to pray. He was actually teaching us how to live. And we're following the metaphor of a house and using the prayer to to invite us to walk into this great house of God and move through the different rooms. Our Father in heaven, welcome to the throne room of God. Hallowed be your name. Let's spend some time in the chapel. And all the way through, give us this daily day, our daily bread. Well, that's the kitchen, isn't it? Um, when we talk about understanding the will of God, we're in the study. And, and we move from room to room. What is it that makes a building the house of God? It's not anything to do with the physical structure. It is the sacred living presence of the Lord among his people. And that doesn't depend on any particular geographical address. That's a spiritual location. And so we're going to try and locate ourselves spiritually in the Father's house, and we're going to use the Lord's Prayer in order to do that. It may be that the most important word in the Lord's Prayer is, in fact, the shortest. It's so brief that we skip right past it. In fact, it's so brief that translators now working in English often omit it entirely just because we assume it. But if you learned the Lord's Prayer a generation ago, chances are you probably learned it in the Old English, the King James English. So you learned to say, say it with me, Our Father who art in heaven. Now that is not a name, art. Of it is a name, but it's not God's name. It is a form of the verb to be. Our Father who exists, who is. Uh, if you were to translate it, you would probably put the little word is. Our Father who is in heaven. That's the word that, uh, that becomes the foundational statement of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father is. Not just that he was, he belongs to some ancient age in the past. Not that he will be, like, boy, we hope we're right, and then maybe it turns out that God will be with us someday. Not God could be or should be, this is a theoretical idea, but, but God is. God is the God of the present tense, and he is the foundation of his own house. Our Father, which art in heaven. That is not a physical address, 3434 Cothra Road, that's where God lives. That is a spiritual address, and it is a statement not so much of where God is located, but the fact that he is 
He is raw existence. He is and he is with us. That is the foundation of the great house of God. And like any building project, a structure is only as resilient and strong as the foundation. I'm not a builder, Sam, but you've done some construction through the years, so you can tell me whether I'm right or not. I've been told that the most expensive part of any construction project is the foundation. And, and that's the part that you absolutely have to get right. Because if you get it wrong, every error on top of it compounds. If you're off by a half inch on the level, well, by the time you get two stories up, you could be out by two inches on the level and everything rolls sideways, including the occupants of the house, whatever it is. You have to get it right. Jesus understood this. In fact, he loved talking about this foundation principle. In one of the stories... This is in Luke chapter 6, if you want to follow along. Luke chapter 6 and verse 46. You catch Jesus at a moment, maybe of of some frustration. Uh, I know it's hard to imagine Jesus being frustrated, but we can be frustrating. People can be frustrating. So here he is. Luke 6, verse 46. Hey, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I say? As for those who come to me and they hear my words and they put them into practice, I will show you what they are like. And here it is. They're like a person building a house who digs down deep and lays the foundation on rock. And when a flood comes and the torrent strikes the house, it will not be shaken because the house is well built. But those who hear my words and don't put them into practice... They're like the person who builds their house on ground with no foundation. And the moment the torrent strikes, the house collapses and the destruction is complete. The most ornate castle, the most elaborate lakeshore mansion cannot stand if the foundation is weak. In fact, there was a church I pastored in Oakville before coming here. There was a church that was quite famous uh, and, and I don't want to name them because I don't want to embarrass St. Andrew's Catholic Church down on... No, but, um, they were known as the sinking church. And they measured it. It was, it was a couple of inches every decade the church had been sinking because they were quite literally built on sand. They were built on lake bed. And until they did the hard work of excavating and shoring up the foundation and strengthening it, they had to deal with the sobering reality that, in fact... This house was sinking. Well, not so. Not so with the great house of God. And remember, we're not talking about something physical. We're using the metaphor to imagine the spiritual location of God's people. The invitation the Lord's Prayer offers is to take up residence in the house of God, to dwell in him. And so I want to talk to you this morning about foundation. But what is the solid and strong foundation of the house in which we live? And it's not what we think, or at least certainly it's not what I think. It's not, it's not the starting place where most of us want to launch. It's tempting to, to look to the strong points in our life as the foundation. So we build our life on our strengths. This is what I'm good at. These are my skills, my attributes, my experiences. Those are the strengths of my life. They are the foundation of my life. We do the same thing with the church. What is the foundation of the church? Well, we got good people, solid volunteers, passionate people, creative, fully engaged. That's the foundation. 
but it's not. I mean, to, to be clear, we, we enjoy those things. They're like adornments in the house, but they are not the foundation. Because your credentials and mine, as lofty as they may be, they're of no concern to God when it comes to building something that will stand solid. The key question in any foundation, spiritually, is not how strong are we, but how strong is our God? And when you focus on the strengths of God, when you occupy yourself with the nature, the attributes, the characteristics of God, and not the size of our own biceps or the weariness in our own legs, then you have something that is resilient, something that will stand. See, if it's built on something less, it's built on on us as, as fickle and as prone to wander as we are, then we will blow in and out of, uh, of every season of strength and opportunity, sort of like a, a house that just sort of bends like a reed. That's not us. That's not what God has in mind. Remember Moses? Some of you remember Moses. Uh, you remember that encounter Moses has with the living God? He didn't realize it was the living God at first. He was just hiking along a mountain pathway. He'd known these. He'd, he was a shepherd. He'd walked these trails for years and years. But on this particular day, he comes across a strange sight, a bush that looks like it's engulfed in flames, but wasn't being burned up, wasn't being consumed. There was, there was something sacred, something ethereal about it. And it was confirmed when he heard a voice and understood that this is God himself speaking. What does God say? Initially, he just says this. Moses, take off your sandals because you are standing on holy ground. And with those 11 words, God begins to draw Moses into a master class on who God is and on what the foundation is of the house of God. Immediately, roles are defined. God is holy. We're not. So approaching him, even on a quarter inch of leather at the bottom of our sandals, that, that was going to be too much. As we read further in that dialogue with Moses, you discover that, that God really spends no time trying to convince Moses of what Moses can do, but he spends all his time reminding Moses of what God can do. We do the opposite. I do the opposite. I'm recruiting for a Moses type. I need somebody to serve on the committee of delivering people from bondage in Egypt. And so I'm going to reach out to a few and I'm going to find Moses and I'm going to, I'm going to try and help Moses understand. Listen, we've seen this on your CV, on your resume. You've done this before and you have these abilities. Uh, you can hold a staff. That's really good. Uh, you can speak Egyptian. In fact, you were raised in the court as a prince. That's a good one. Uh, Moses, public speak. Okay. Well, not so good, but we'll work with that. See, we want to start with people and their abilities. And sometimes we even want to make it sound easy. Hey, Moses, it's only going to be a couple of nights a month. You know, you speak to Pharaoh, and then you've got the next few weeks on your own. Then you speak to Pharaoh again, but it's, a, it's not that big a commitment. God never works that way. What God is doing with Moses is not a pep talk, a pat on the back. Moses, you're strong enough. You're, you're wise enough. You're consistent enough. You can do it. Not one word is spent trying to recruit Moses. But all the words are spent trying to reveal God. The strength of Moses is not the issue. The strength of God is. Maybe we should pause there for a little application. 
In fact, let's, let's repeat that sentence, but let's repeat it differently by inserting your own name. So if we put that up on the screen, let's read it together, but in the blank, you're going to put your name. Let's say that. The strength of Richard is not the issue. The strength of God is. You are not the sole driving force behind your life. You are not the mortar holding together the bricks that form the foundation in God's house. You know that in your head, but do you know that in your heart? Can you live that way day to day as if it doesn't rely on me, my capacity, my strength. It relies on him and his capacity and his strength is without bounds. It will change. I promise you, it will change your attitude towards life. What I'd like to do, and we're not going to spend long. This is a short message this morning, but I want to show you a few of the mighty boulders that you might want to imagine that are in place supporting the foundation of the Father's house. And we're going to do that by studying some of the names of God. The Lord's Prayer begins with this this incredible declaration of intimacy and relationship. It starts, Our Father. That is not a title that people were comfortable using for God. Uh, For the early pages of of the Old Testament, God was given simply by the name Elohim, which we translate as as God or creator. In fact, for, for the entire first book of the Bible, Genesis 31 times, when God is named, it's named, he's named that way, Elohim, the creator. And the idea is this is a person with strength and creativity and power. And this was the, the way that, that people understood God. And, and if you fast forward through the centuries, you get this declaration of, of relationship, not just distant creator, absentee universe maker, as if uh, some grand designer sets the universe in motion, winds it up, and then just lets it alone and watches it unwind. No, no, this is, this is God who is intimately involved in, and acquainted with his creation, tucked in close to those he had created. So over time, between those opening passages of Genesis, Elohim, creator, and that declaration of Jesus, our Father who is in heaven. Over time, people's understanding of who God is began to really grow. And I want to show you how it grows. And these will become like the, the foundations, the, 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 the solid rocks on which we build this great house of God. We're going to look at a series of compound names. There's lots of names for God, like 80, more than 80 in the Old Testament alone. But we're going to look at compound names, which are the name of God associated with an adjective that says something about who God is. Now, when I say the name of God, I actually mean the name of God. And here's a place where where sometimes the way we use expressions in English doesn't help us. For example, the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus Christ, one of those is a name Two of those words are titles. You know the difference? What's the name? Jesus. What are the titles? Lord and Christ, right? God has a name, and it's it's prevalent through the Old Testament. We just tend not to see it, and here's why. Let's go back to that story of Moses. Moses standing before this reminder, this representation of the living God. And after God reveals 
these, these, these great mighty boulders of his character and his strength and, and his plan to set his people free, finally to get deliverance from slavery for people who lived in bondage in Egypt. So, so God unfurls the plan. And Moses responds. One of the few times Moses actually speaks, he says, you know, God, I'm going to go. And when I tell them everything that you have told me, and they say, who sent you? I mean, tell us about this God of yours. By what name shall I make you known? And God responds, and what a response it is. He says, in effect, you can tell them that I am sent you. You go, what? I am. I am. What God really said there, he spoke the word, the verb, which is in English, to be. But he spoke it in a way that, that is devoid of any, any tense. So this is not God in the past tense. Tell them I was sent you. This is not God in the future tense. Tell them I will be is the one who sent you. It's not even God in the present tense. Tell them I, I am sent you. No, it's, it, it's God that is beyond tense. Raw existence. Just the ground of being. I was, I am, I always will be. Everything that is is rooted in me. God says, I am. And the way that you spell that name, I am, in Hebrew, the language of the Old Testament, Y-H-W-H. And because they wrote only the consonants, they never wrote the vowels, we have, over time, tried to guess at how it's pronounced. One of our guesses is Yahweh. Another of our guesses is Jehovah. Not that one is right or one is wrong. We're just trying to, we're trying to imagine how they said it when they said it, because here's the other truth. They almost never said it. They thought the name itself was too holy to come across human lips. So whenever they saw it written down, instead of reading it, this is the name of God, Yahweh or Jehovah, they would just say, Lord. They would use a title instead of the name of God. Whenever you read through the Old Testament and you see the Lord, all in capital letters, L-O-R-D, as opposed to Lord in small letters, which just could be the, like the Lord of the house, the master of the house. When you see it all in capital letters, realize underneath that what you're seeing is the literal name of God, Y-H-W-H, the power of raw existence. This is like the Elohim, the creator form of God. But what happens over time is that people begin to attach to the name of God, Jehovah, some of the great attributes of God. So Jacob, for example, let's start with Jacob. Jacob comes to see God as Jehovah Reah, a caring shepherd. God has led me all my life, Jacob tells his family, like a shepherd. I mean, surely this is meant as a compliment for God. And it had to be because Jacob, I mean, as far as sheep goes, Jacob was not a stellar sheep. He tricked his brother not once, but twice. He suckered his blind father. He outcrossed his own double-crossing father-in-law. He conned him out of livestock. And then when the old fellow wasn't looking, he snuck off with everything that wasn't nailed down. That's Jacob. Never a candidate for the best-behaved sheep award. But God never forgot him. And God, God never gave up on him. And God gave him food during years of famine. 
and forgiveness in the face of many, many failures and faith in his final years that was something vibrant and beautiful. And if you ask Jacob to describe God in a word, that would be his word. Jehovah Reah, the caring shepherd. God who leads me like a shepherd. Think for a second about Abraham. Abraham had a different name for God. You already heard it once this morning. You heard it from our service host. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who provides. I mean, it's kind of ironic that of all the people, that it's Abraham who uses this expression for God as provider. Because Abraham was pretty well provided for already. He lived in like this split-level tent with a four-camel garage. He he had flocks and, and people and family. And life was good for him in Ur, which is where he lived. You are Ur city. But life might be better in Canaan, Abraham told his family one day. So we're going to pack it all up and go. And as they were going, the family asked them and said, Abraham, where are we going to live? And Abraham said, God will provide. Jehovah Jireh. Uh, And when they got caught up in a scandal in Egypt and people wondered, how are we going to get out of this? Abraham assured them, God will provide. And he did. Uh, and when they came to occupy the land, and it came time to split it up, and it was clear that this split was not happening in any way that was equal, that, that Lot, Abraham's nephew, was running off with all the good grassland, and Abraham was going to get left with just the rocks. And, and people said, Abraham, how are we going to survive? And Abraham said, God will provide. And he did. And when Abraham and Sarah stood next to an empty crib, and, and they wondered how they would ever see the promise of God that they would be the mother and the father of a mighty nation. Abraham just put his arm around his aging wife and said, the Lord will provide. And God did. The next thing you know, there's Abraham bouncing a baby boy on 100-year-old bony knees. (laughs) And Abraham learned, God provides. Jehovah Jireh. Think with me about Gideon, another one of the Great characters in the Old Testament. The Lord comes to Gideon and, and tells Gideon, listen, I, I, I need you front and center for this part of the story of my people. Uh, they were locked in battle with the Midianites. And, and, and God comes to Gideon and says, I want you to go out as my champion. And I want you to face them down. That's kind of like God coming to a battered housewife saying, I want you to face down your abusive husband or... Or to a high school student say, I want you to face down the drug peddlers in the corner of the cafeteria. This is a big ask. Pastor, I want you to go set up your pulpit outside the mosque on Sunday morning or Saturday night. It's a big ask. And and you can imagine Gideon stammering away with his answer. You better get someone else, Lord. And then God reminds Gideon the same thing he he reminds us again and again. He knows we can't, but he can. And as part of proving it, he offers Gideon a wonderful gift. Uh, How much we cherish this gift. Often we pray, God, could you you change the circumstances of our life? And whatever the storm is we're in, could could you just settle the air a little bit? Whatever the adversity we face, could you just... Bring it down a few levels. God, could you change the circumstances? But but we know sometimes circumstances persist. And sometimes the prayer shifts to, God, if you're not going to change the circumstances, 
Could you change something in me so that I'm adequate to the circumstances? And the thing that God gives most in those places, a word that that maybe doesn't feel like it fits there, but it absolutely does. God sends peace. Because peace is not the absence of conflict. Peace is a settled sense that God is with us even in the middle of the storm. For, for Paul, who wrote so much of the, the correspondence recorded in the Old Testament, peace was something that was beyond logic. Paul describes it this way, Philippians 4, 7. He says, this is a peace that passes all understanding. This is what God gives to David when he has to look down Goliath across, across the fields. It's what he gives to, to Paul when he's still Saul. And then meets Jesus on the Emmaus Road. It's what he gives to Jesus. After Jesus prays desperately, not my will, but yours be done. And it's what in this moment, God is going to give to Gideon. So Gideon receives this gift of peace. And then Judges 6.24, he goes out in an act of worship. He carves on a stone this reminder that our God is Jehovah Shalom. Jehovah Shalom, the Lord is our peace. That's Gideon. At least a couple of those rocks that are, that are bedrock, that are foundational to the house of God, um, they were placed in there or carved onto by Moses himself. We talked about Moses. On one of those rocks, he carved the name Jehovah Rophe. You find the English translation of that, Exodus fifteen twenty six. I am the Lord who heals you. Jehovah Rophe. Here's the setting. Over a million Israelites who'd lived in captivity are now free. They'd followed Moses into the wilderness and, and they're searching for what will become their new home, but they're not there yet. And their newfound freedom very quickly turns to frustration. Because how do you pack for a million people? You know, it doesn't fit in a picnic basket. Very quickly they ran out of food. And even more quickly, they ran out of water. This is a hot, dry, arid, sometimes inconsolate land. Scripture says their neighbors were the sun and the serpents. And then finally, in the midst of their traveling and their wandering, they come across a lake. Praise God, a lake! And somebody dips down in there and grabs a handful of water, and it's undrinkable. The water is is brackish. It's bitter and dangerous. I'm sure what happens next wasn't funny at the time, but, but it brings a smile to my face at least. So they stop and they pray. This is Exodus 15, verse 25. Moses cries out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. <laughs> they're starving, and they're dying of thirst, and God shows them a tree. Moses is begging for water, and God gives him wood. And Moses responds by taking the tree and throwing it into the lake. And I don't know whether he did it out of aggravation. Here's what I think of this tree stuff. Or out of inspiration. You're in charge, God. We trust you. I mean, if you gave us a tree, we must need to do something with the tree. But the minute it hit the waters, the waters are purified. The nation is satisfied. God is glorified. And in that case... God reveals something else about who he is. I am the Lord who heals you. I am Jehovah Rophe. 
another one of those rocks, the foundation of the great house of God, also bearing the chisel marks of Moses. He is Jehovah Nissi. The Lord is my banner. In the heat of battle, soldiers who feared getting separated from their army could always rally back to the banner. That's why you carried the colors into battle. So that if you got lost, that's where you went. That's where there was safety. That's where you could be tended to. That's where you could be retooled and refueled and sent back into the struggle. Jehovah Nisi, the Lord is our banner. And here's the background. There was a moment when, when Israel and the, they were in the midst of a, just a, a, a ferocious, ferocious struggle against a group called the Amalekites. Moses went up to the top of a mountainside looking down over the battlefields and, and he noticed that, that as he prayed with his arms aloft, that whenever his arms were aloft and his posture towards God was one of worship and prayer, that, uh, that God's people were prevailing in the conflict, in the struggle. But when he allowed his arms to fall, the tide turned. And Moses may not have been the smartest guy in the bunch, but he was smart enough to know that that meant he better keep his arms up. And, and he did. And when he didn't have the strength to hold them up, he got his friends to hold them up for him. And at the end of the day, after giving credit where credit was absolutely due, he carved on a stone those words, Jehovah Nissi, the Lord has been our banner. You know what? We're going to stop there. I mean, that's just a few of the names of God. It's not so much being able to generate a lengthy list as it is a list that we can really give ownership to. Learn the names. Rely on the names. When you're confused about the future, you go to Jehovah Reah, your caring shepherd. When you're anxious about, about the bills or about your job, you talk to Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. When the challenges that you're facing in life feel like they are going to overwhelm you, it's just too much. The circumstances seem out of your control. You need Jehovah Shalom, God who's your peace. And when your body is failing or your emotions are weak, Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals. And if ever you feel like, like you're trapped in a battle and you cannot escape, that you're hidden there behind enemy lines, you take refuge in Jehovah Nissi, the Lord is my banner. Meditating on the names of God is a way of reminding ourselves of the character of God. And we take the names and we... We place them deep in our heart in the same way that we place them deep in the foundation of this metaphorical house of God that begins with the declaration simply that God is. He is the power of raw existence. But then it goes on to tell us exactly what that means to live our lives within the house of God, the house that bears his name. God is the shepherd who guides God is the Lord who provides. God is the voice that brings peace in the storm. The physician who heals the sick. And the banner that guides you home. Most of all, though, God is.
next Sunday is Father's Day. And as we, as we gather to celebrate what that means to us, we're going to look at the next of the big words in the opening verse of the Lord's Prayer. It's not just that God is. Our Father is. I hope you'll come back. I'm going to invite Pastor Sheldon to come and lead us in prayer.